I'm Adam Jackson. And I'm Gabe Lunas-Deseski. We're two serial entrepreneurs and investors here in Silicon Valley. We're building a new talent network called Brain Trust and have created the Way Work Should Work podcast, where we'll dive into new business models, incentive systems, and ownership structures that will affect how every single one of us works. We're joined by top tech investors, business leaders, and academics on the front lines shaping the future of work. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Robin J. Suthason, a global thought leader and author on the future of work and human capital. Robin is the global leader of Willis Towers Watson's Future of Work Practice and a member of the World Economic Forum Steering Committee on Work and Employment. Having led numerous research projects for the World Economic Forum on the global workforce, the emerging digital economy, and the rise of artificial intelligence and the transformation of work, Robin has published three books on the future of work and joins us today from Chicago, where he lives with his wife. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thanks for having me on, Adam. It's a pleasure to join both you and Gabe today. Great. Okay. Let's start with a little bit of background. Love to start at the beginning. Can you tell our listeners your background, what brought you to where you are today? Yeah. it's. I like to think of it as uh, per the title of my last book, as kind of a journey of reinvention. So I was born in Malaysia. I grew up in the UK but I've lived in the United States for about 30 years now. And um, I have just had the great privilege of living in and experiencing and working in many, many different cultures and just being put into situations which have allowed me to really grow exponentially all the way from helping United through its bankruptcy in 2001 to working with BP as part of its resetting of culture on the heels of um, the Horizon Well disaster, to uh, you know, working with Unilever on its framework for the future of work. So it's it's been a journey of reinvention, both professionally as well as personally. You know, I went to school with the intention of becoming an engineer. You know, just like my dad was, and absolutely hated it. But the thing I quickly realized was once you put a dollar sign in front of those numbers, everything kind of clicked. So I ended up getting a bachelor's degree and a master's in finance. I'm also a chartered financial analyst. And it's been really a lot of fun for the last 20 odd years, applying some of those analytical disciplines to how we think about humans and work. Again, just the whole journey, as I said at the outset, has been one of perpetual reinvention. Well, so Robin, you know, a big part of your job is advising leaders across all different industries, right? From, from healthcare to banking and CPG around navigating change. And obviously we're in a period of really rapid change. And I would say for a lot of these leaders, uh, it's been what I would call forced reinvention versus voluntary reinvention, right? Now, some of these, some of these trends have been accelerated, you know, by decades in the last six months. I'm curious to get your kind of like your take. What advice are you giving to leaders right now when it comes to you know navigating change and navigating this process of, of forced reinvention? Yeah, you know, the, the way we've thought about it, Gabe, is you know, this notion of kind of a sustainable reset. And and I think a big part of it is kind of moving beyond your legacy because you know, the thing we've observed, and we touched on this in my last book, Reinventing Jobs, was that many organizations, particularly established ones, compete on the basis of legacy, how they work, how they lead, you know, their operational processes, their customer relationships, their infrastructure. And increasingly, you know, prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic has accelerated it even more, 
that legacy has gone from being an asset to actually increasingly a liability for many organizations. And so it's how do you pivot away from that legacy? Also, how do you pivot away from that traditional growth and efficiency mindset to more of a mindset of resilience and agility? And, you know, a, a big part of it involves the metrics that you use to run your businesses. But I think it's also this very stark recognition that, you know, we talk about these black swan events, right? Whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the global financial crisis, whether it was 9-11, as if they're the rarest of beasts. And yet we've had two in 12 years and arguably three in 20 years. And so the need for a resilient organization that can withstand some of these shocks with the agility to pivot from one crisis to an emerging opportunity is increasingly at a premium. And so the work that I'm doing with organizations is to help them figure out, you know, what is that resilient, what does the resilient enterprise look like? What does it mean for leadership models and mindsets? What does it mean to lead a resilient enterprise? What are the new metrics that are going to give you kind of that more accurate snapshot of how you are calibrating to this new true north. So the, the pivot has been from these very well-established metrics of growth and efficiency, largely financial, to a much more nuanced set of metrics that capture you know, resilience from the perspective of multiple stakeholders, agility from the perspective of multiple stakeholders. And it, it goes actually ties in really well with this growing movement around ESG that we're seeing both in corporate America as well as with companies around the world. Hey, I love this topic. This is super interesting. So let's pick industries here. I want to get more specific. I, I think this you know, movement from pure market efficiency to resiliency, there's a couple of ways this could happen, if at all. Let's pick on airlines because they're easy. They, you know, have been stockpiling cash for the last decade. Fares going up, oil prices going down, profits going up. What do they do with all that money? Buy shares back, right? So they don't have a drop left for the rainy day. Pandemic hits, demand drops by ninety percent. Who holds the bag? U.S. taxpayers. So that's a that's a dramatic example, but this is plays out in every industry eventually, probably besides tech, until they get regulated. So, so are there market? Is can this problem this this migration from? capital efficiency to resiliency be accomplished in a pure market driven economy or does the government need to step in or both? I suspect it's going to need to be both because at the heart of this, Adam, is, is frankly a recalibration of what enough means because in a pure profit motivating enterprise, enough just means more. You know, now what we're saying is kind of what you need is kind of a balancing effect, right? What's enough in terms of profit? What's the optimal outcome in terms of your customers versus your employees, et cetera? And I think that's where the notion of balance, you know, we've been talking about balance with the balance scorecard going back to the 90s, but I think more than ever now, the need for balance is, is really at a premium, but I don't think it can be left to pure market forces to do that. I don't think it can be left to one-off and, you know, sort of often tepid regulatory measures. I, I think it does call for a much more concerted set of regulations and a pivot on the part of many corporate leaders. You know, you know what would be amazing actually is if we could actually just leave it to market forces and maybe amend the constitution or something to keep the Fed out of it, right? If I'm an S&P index CEO, 
I don't have to worry about my stock price, right? Like Jay Powell just, just proved this to us, right? Like, like no, forget earnings in a pandemic. We're going to do just fine because the Fed's going to print money, buy ETFs, and they're going to save our butts. And I don't think Jay Powell's trying to save the, the CEO's butts, but certainly the shareholders in the 401ks and the, and the trickle down. So if we could just keep the Fed out of it next time, I wonder what that would do. It's an interesting, like, do we need more regulation here or less? You know what I mean? Like if, if, if we could keep this sort of unfortunate you know, taxpayer safety net that we started in 2008 and just did times 10 in 2020. If that were off the table, I wonder if corporate behavior would change. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's an interesting question. So I think we have the luxury, right, in this country of being able to, to print money and the consequence not being quite near, anywhere near the same as the UK or any other country that is not a reserve currency printing its own currency, Right. But I do think the way we keep score as organizations when it's business as usual needs to change. Because you're right, in times of crisis, we've been able to sort of respond, as we mentioned, right, with these two black swan events. And it's great that we can sort of rely on the Fed and government intervention to sort of bail the economy out in ways that are not possible in other countries. But when it comes to business as usual, I do think it, we need to sort of have a very different way of keeping score that reflects this resilience and agility. Because otherwise, come the next crisis, right, it's going to be, to your point about the airlines, it's going to be companies turning to the government again. This is where my, my potential issue with a pure capitalistic system comes into play, right? Because the only way of keeping score now is earnings multiples, right? And so that is the antithesis of resiliency, right? Like if, exactly. if United Airlines decides we're going to be more resilient, American and Delta will just eat their lunch and kick them out. So the rules have to change across the board. And, and it is a countermeasure to globalism at that point, because you have to keep foreign low-cost competitors away who can be by choice, not resilient. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it calls for certainly a lot more global coordination on accounting, on regulation. It calls for, you know, a sort of negotiated balance, I guess, as opposed to, you know, perhaps under the guise of capitalism, you know, a free for all. Well, we should be able to get China to play ball with that, right? No problem. <laughs> a little so, above my pay grade, I guess. <laughs> so, Robin, when, when you go into a company, you've talked a little bit about this concept of kind of a resilient scorecard. So when you go into a, a company, and we don't have to use an example, but I, I think it's helpful for, for our listeners to think about, like, how do you evaluate the resiliency of an organization? What is that scorecard? Maybe you can give some concrete examples. Because... When companies self-evaluate, they often say, yeah, we're very resilient, right? We put everyone in one office, like we have backups on our servers, but then like these black swan events come along. So how do you evaluate the resiliency of an organization? What are the, what are the KPIs that you look at? Yeah, uh, let me give you a couple of examples, Gabe. You know, one is, is the organization able to withstand a shock to its supply chain or its value chain? And so under different scenarios, you know, how exposed is the organization? That would be one. The second is when exposed, how quickly or easily can the organization pivot? It's, you know, I'll just pick one example. It's sources of work. And so, you know, we talk about agility. So having an enterprise that can pivot from 
disruption in one part of the world to actually having work done by potentially gig workers in another part of the world to be able to step in. If a certain business unit is sort of hampered by a surge in demand, can talent be legitimately redeployed to sort of from another part of the business to take that on? You know, we saw a lot of that in this pandemic, right? We saw Bank of America, this is a public example, pivot 3,000 people from its head office to deal with the influx in calls from the CARES Act. Examples like that have, as I've seen over the last sort of nine months, have started to become like the, the initial sort of cracks in some of these legacy structures that have, in fact, driven inefficiency, driven a lack of resilience. You know, the notion of everyone being in a job, which sort of hinders the free flow of, of talent to work as it emerges or as it uh, declines and flow away from uh, declining work. So those would be just a couple of examples of the things that we would look at as it relates to the organization's capability and, frankly, you know, leadership mindset and operating model. Do you have leaders who are able to sort of grab opportunities as they emerge? Do you have leaders who are able to sort of pivot away from shocks to the business model as opposed to trying to cling on? Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Braintrust. Like what you're hearing on our podcast? Are you ready to take the next step? Visit usebraintrust.com backslash match to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for our listeners of this podcast, we're offering a two-week free trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com backslash match to get started today. That's U-S-E-B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com backslash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. Yeah. Oh, just a quick follow-up there. I'm curious to dig into this topic of like resilience of workforce and also, you know, different, I'll say talent pools or, or like reconfiguring your existing talent pool. It feels like that might've been like vitamins six months ago when you went and talked to these executives, meaning the idea of tapping into virtual talent pools or, or gig talent pools or moving existing workforces. How has that as a topic changed for the customers that you work with in this last six months? Is that, has that become like painkillers now from vitamins? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's gone from being sort of a nice little interesting thing that a couple of organizations are doing to now becoming, you know, absolutely pivotal to their, not just their existing sort of relevance, but continued relevance as well. Let me give you a couple of data points, because one of the things that we as a firm have been privileged to do is talk to our customers and clients around the world, basic almost every week since January. Some of the things that have really jumped out at me are, you know, one, most recent survey sort of a couple of months ago, 63% of companies saying that they was they had in the last sort of six to nine months, started to respond to the challenges and the opportunities of this crisis with much greater degree of agility. So redeploying talent from one part of the business to another, reskilling and upskilling their workforces to deal with new digital means of delivery. That was one thing. The other is, interestingly enough, almost 20% of companies starting to think beyond themselves. You know, we've seen a lot of movement of talent 
from one organization to another. We've seen in, in Germany, for example, McDonald's sharing its talent with Aldi, the retailer. SAS sharing its flight attendants who have some basic skills in care management and caregiving, upskilling them over a period of a couple of hours and equipping them to be ready to support the health healthcare services in both Sweden and Norway. We've seen baggage handlers from airlines in, in the United States get redeployed to working in distribution centers for large retailers. So companies thinking beyond themselves to offset the impacts of the shock. Clearly the big, the other big thing that, you know, probably the biggest thing that we've seen is the virtualization of work, right? We've been talking about this for 50 years. Back in 1970, Alvin Toffler wrote about electronic cottages. And in 50 years in this country, we only got to 2% of all work full-time being done remotely. Yeah. And overnight, we went to somewhere north of 50%. And I know from our conversations with clients, we've had a research study that just came out last week, close to 1,500 respondents. And the findings were, this remote thing is here to stay. You know, we might have spent this year and a good part of next year doing it out of a concern for the safety of our workforces post June next year, it's going to stay here. But the primary reason is because it allows us to maintain productivity, attract talent we might not otherwise get, as well as retain the people who we already have who are now demanding these ways of working. So just a couple of examples of, you know, how massively we have moved the needle on, you know, building more resilient kind of future ready enterprises. You, you touched on a couple of interesting things that I just want to double click into. That, that's definitely like, I'll say where the work is getting done, right? Where and maybe how the work is getting done, right? Done in a more digital or virtual asynchronous way. One of the things that, that when we talk to a lot of enterprises is that the nature of the work that needs to be done is actually dramatically shifting, right? We're moving to a world where, where every single company on the planet is now a tech company. Yeah. And they all need to hire engineers and software developers and, and UI and UX designers and, and you know digital architects. The challenge is you can't move somebody from customer service to becoming a you know a software architect. And these companies are in places like Omaha or St. Louis or in places where that talent just doesn't exist. So how are you advising executives to be able to access the kind of talent that they need to be able to innovate? Yeah. And, and it goes back to something I said a second ago around, you know, if you're going to build resilience, what you really need is kind of a portfolio based approach to work. So if you think uh, to go back to Adam, as we were talking about sort of capital markets and the trade-offs between risk and return in much the same way, understanding what are the trade-offs between different sources of work, whether it's employees and jobs, employees, moving in a more agile fashion to new opportunities within the company, whether it's gig talent, whether it's the use of RPA or AI, it's actually ensuring that you've got leadership with the muscle and the discipline to understand all of these different ways of getting work done, to be able to execute against them. So do they know how, when you need work done, to not just open a rec with HR, <laughs> but to engage with someone like you guys, right? in terms of finding the right talent to get the work done because they've got the metrics that tell them from a speed to capability, cost and a risk and a productivity perspective, 
that's the best outcome for this particular body of work. So that I think is really one of the key things, key leadership disciplines that needs to be developed. If in fact, we're going to have the sustainable reset and the organization is going to be able to pivot in agile fashion from one source of work to another as, as conditions dictate. Hmm. Really interesting. I love that idea of kind of a portfolio based approach to work. What do you think the components of that portfolio and how do you think about recommending kind of the sizing of each one? Because historically, it's basically been W2, like butts and seats for a lot of these legacy companies. And then maybe you go to, a, to an Accenture or something like that when you need to get capabilities outside of the W2s. But now that world has expanded. So how do you think about the components of that? And then how do you advise organizations on which ones to weight differently? Yeah, so I would I think of it as two, two things. One is firstly recognizing what are all the options available, right? Yep. So today we have at least eight different ways of getting work done. I could go have employees in more traditional roles do the work. I could have potentially independent contractors, sort of the traditional reagent type model. I could outsource, as you mentioned, to uh, some third party. I could set up an alliance. I could tap into a marketplace to get sort of highly skilled labor. I could tap into volunteers if I'm looking to crowdsource innovation or to promote or to engage with promoting my brands on social media. And then you've got all forms of robotics, virtual or physical, and, and AI. And I think understanding those options, A, is the first thing. B, understanding the specific nature of work and what types of activities and tasks lend themselves best to each of these different options under different economic and other scenarios, right? And so this, with this, and this is kind of the crux of my last book, Reinventing Jobs. It really does require you to get beyond the notion of jobs to your point, right? Instead of me just thinking about, I'm going to give this to, I'm going to hire someone to do X. How do I deconstruct the job, understand what the optimal option is for a particular body of work, and then redeploy that work to that particular option. But it also requires, I think, metrics that look very, very different. So today, the notion of butts and seats is, re, is reinforced by things like headcount planning, right? and looking at FTEs, as opposed to one of the metrics we advocated for in our last white paper with the World Economic Forum called human capital as an asset, is this notion of the total cost of work. Do you really understand the total cost of work? And do we have a single metric that can level the playing field, adjusting for the various anomalies associated with certain types of work options like alliances or joint ventures, are treated very differently from an accounting perspective versus human labor who are sort of expensed annually, right, based on the labor cost incurred, or potentially other work options that maybe are held off the balance sheet even. So how do you create kind of a level playing field for all of those options and be able to sort of analyze, if I make decision X, what does that do to my total cost of work? What does that do to my return on work? I think having the right metrics, not necessarily the gap metrics, but the right ones from a management accounting perspective are essential. So you've done some work with Unilever, right? I'd love to maybe dig into an example here, maybe of, of, of a company you think is doing it well, if that's Unilever. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about it as much as you feel comfortable talking about how they think about the future of work and, and organizing the right people doing the right things. 
Yeah. So this is a case study from that white paper that I, I referenced uh, with the World Economic Forum. So Unilever is an organization that I've had the privilege of working with. All of this is publicly disclosed. But we help them develop with their team, their framework for the future of work. And the thing to me that is incredibly powerful is how Lena Nair, their chief HR officer, and Alan Job, their CEO, really hold true to their notion of purpose, right? Their notion of purpose as a brand, their purpose as a business, and the purpose that they, as it relates to their value exchange with their people. So their framework for the future of work is really fascinating because it links how they attract and engage and retain talent with how they redeploy talent to different work options. They have an internal marketplace for talent that allows them to sort of get talent from different parts of the world engaged in quick burn, highly time-sensitive projects in different parts of the world. And people kind of flow to or swarm around these projects and opportunities regardless of which function or job they sit in. They also, I think, do a great job of engaging with different external marketplaces to ensure that they're getting the right talent from outside of their organization to come in and take on projects. And so their framework is really fascinating because not just is it a powerful management tool for connecting people to work as well as understanding the other options available, it's also about being very clear and transparent with their workforces about what is each person's future fit plan. And that's something that I see very few organizations doing. Many will pay sort of lip service that we are a people-oriented company, but at Unilever, every person has a future fit discussion with a clear sense of how they will sustain their well-being at the company, how they will continue in their relevance to contribute to the company, and the options available to them, whether to upskill for a job that's changing, to reskill for a fundamentally different job that can utilize some of their legacy skills, or potentially even sort of think about options beyond the organization. Robin, you mentioned external talent marketplaces. We're obviously seeing a a lot of growth there from where we sit. Why why do you think it's taken so long for this space to come around to maturity? And why don't big companies use them more often, do you think? So I'll go back, Adam, to where I started, which was legacy. Legacy, the inertia and power of legacy is such an incredible force, as we all know, right? I think the ease with which it's, I can open a wreck and try and get an employee under the guise of it's safer, it's cheaper, it's more secure, which are not, in most cases, not true at all, because there are so many different ways of getting talent from outside the organization much faster, much cheaper, often with much less security and cyber risk than you have with with your own employees. And so, so I do think it's organizations who... It's taken a while, but the thing I love about, again, I'll go back to Unilever, the thing that is fascinating to me, what powers their framework is this continuous experimentation. They're always trying something in different parts of the world. And there is no, and and the question that's asked is, you know, how do we learn from this, whether it was a success or failure, and how do we sort of scale it? I don't see that sort of desire to experiment and try new things in too many organizations. Yeah. Yeah. I I get that. I want to double tap into another looking at your slide, the seven guiding principles, which I love. This is such an excellent framework. The fifth one is, is treating, you know, old way from 
treating workforce as an expense to workforce as an asset. And I mean, this is, this is such a giant paradigm shift. I, I think of all seven here, maybe the most challenging. How, how does this work? I mean, th- this has got to be like a change in the tax code, right? I mean, this is, there's a bunch of stuff here. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, you know, the metric we've been advocating for is one, and it's it's more of a conceptual, perhaps even aspirational metric of how do you think about the value of your workforce, how you're adding to the value of that workforce, you know, with upskilling, with reskilling, adding to it with access to talent who are, who bring some different skills and perspectives who may not be your employees. And then equally, do you understand the impairment of that workforce, right? We've been talking about a shrinking half-life of skills for close to a decade now, yet we're nowhere, no closer to measuring that. But understanding, you know, how the market value of your workforce is either growing or diminishing based on the composition of skills. And so we, in this white paper, have some proxies and metrics for that. But you're right. It's a massive change, right? Because today, from a pure accounting perspective, your salaries, your onboarding, your development costs, your learning, your technical training, the work experience you provide for your people, that engenders value well beyond the current year. All of that gets expensed. And you know, the, the parallel that we drew was, you know, if you look at in oil and gas, we have a measure or, or, or evaluation called PV10. PV10 basically captures the value of the investment you make in your oil fields and it's reported on your balance sheets. If we can do that with a commodity, why can't we do it for that most essential commodity powering our businesses, particularly as we move into the digital world, you know, the ingenuity and the creativity of our people, whether employee or otherwise. Very well said. I think that's one of the most compelling points I've heard anybody make in this space. So thank you for articulating that so well. I want to shift gears a little bit to this related, a little hairier topic here with gig workers. So Gig workers, by definition, are the supply side of a marketplace, right? They are not the human capital inside the organization. They are essentially the product being sold. And and when I say gig, let's let's define boundaries here. I mean, you know, anyone who works on sort of a contractual basis. And when we think of the gig economy, we typically think of lower skilled fields. So food delivery, people delivery, et cetera giant wealth creation here for Silicon Valley founders and VCs, while simultaneously, and I'll quote a Georgetown study from 2017 that studied effective national minimum wage, went in the field of drivers, for instance, or specifically pre-Uber, post-Uber, effective national minimum wage went from $12.50, something like that, down to around $5. Again, Georgetown did a long study on this. So it's a whole different topic here, right? It's, and you saw AB5 in California, which I think the spirit of AB5, the heart was in the right place. Let's create a safety net. Let, let's get benefits. I think some of the um, union culture here in California managed to lead it astray. And then Prop 22, which goes to exempt the companies this was designed for, passes handily because they cannot spend everybody. How do you fix this one? How do we get gig workers who are worse off now than before the gig economy existed, right? Quantitatively, how do, how do we get them back in the game? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of ideas. I don't think by any means I have the silver bullet, right? That is going for to sure. Yeah, for sure. But I, I do think that, you know, there needs to be a sort of a, a flaw, if you will, as it relates to, you know, whether it's a minimum wage, piecemeal basis, 
I do think there needs to be some funding of, and I suspect competitive factors will determine whether that funding comes from the company versus the customer. But I guess ultimately it's the customers paying for everything anyway. But similar to what's been talked about in the state of Washington around, you know, sort of flexible and portable accounts that can be used for funding, whether it's healthcare, that can be used for funding and upskilling and reskilling, potentially uh, sick pay, paid time off, potentially retirement benefits, et cetera. I do think, you know, and I'm hopeful that the new administration may be open to ideas on how do we create a much more equitable means for allowing people to sort of engage with the gig economy, because there are some, and, you know, we see this in our surveys, right? And we've seen it in other studies that have been done by staffing analysts and other places. There are some real reasons for why people sort of engage with the gig economy. And the answer is not to make everyone an employee, right? Um, You know, there are some real reasons. I think it's about establishing some very different safety nets and security safety nets for people so that they can, in fact, make those choices and be sort of appropriately protected as opposed to being sort of forced into the lowest common denominator, which it feels like, you know, certainly for one part of the gig economy, you're seeing a lot of that. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to The Way Work Should Work, brought to you by Brain Trust. Like what you're hearing on the podcast? Ready to take the next steps? Visit usebraintrust.com slash match to get matched with highly skilled technical talent today. And for listeners of this podcast, we're offering a free two-week trial. That's right. Top tech talent delivered straight to your inbox within 48 hours, risk-free. Don't wait. Go to usebraintrust.com slash match to get started today. That's usebraintrust.com slash M-A-T-C-H to get started today. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think what AB5 was trying to do is force all these people into full-time you know, W-2 arrangements, which made no sense. It took the flexibility out of it. It, it, it threw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, which may have worked for other trades 20, 30, 40 years ago in California made no sense here. I, and I, I love your suggestions as well. I, I think those combined with, I think we need some kind of a public option on healthcare because healthcare continues to be the biggest line item for these folks that, that don't have nice corporate cushy plans behind them. And then what, what we do, I'll shameless plug for us. Like we're, we're, we're building the user owned economy. We believe in giving away ownership and control of the network to everyone who makes a living on the network and you keep incentives aligned. I mean, I, I go back to how DoorDash rolled out a feature last year where they enabled tipping to their dashers and then decided to keep all of the tips and book them as revenue. And so they'd have a, a better 2019 year. And, you know, if you got the drivers involved early and, and they had to vote on stuff like that, and it was an actually community controlled network, theft from the top would be less likely. And so lots of things in that direction. Shifting gears a little bit too. I I love, I mean, you you have such great insights here. I know you've done, you've spoken about this publicly as well. And it's, you know, an easy topic to to fear monger on is the whole AI, you know, robots come in to take our jobs and there's no AI genie's not going back in the bottle, right? It's, it's getting smarter, better, faster. And I, I chuckle a little bit. It's, it's not just people who drive trucks or build things on assembly lines. It's people who write code, people who write article, right? There's, there's, you know, knowledge workers are just as vulnerable here. What, like, what's your take? How do you think we should be thinking about this? Yeah, you know, there's a great study that MIT just published, uh, David Order at, at MIT. I'm a huge fan of his and he does some, some great work. 
But, you know, as we said in reinventing jobs, you know, the reality in the future is, is far more nuanced than these blanket statements of, you know, it'll either be creating a ton of new work for us and we don't have to worry, or it'll be taking all of our jobs, right? And the reality is far more nuanced. I think we're going to see a lot of dislocation from certain, some industries to others as opportunities are created. I think we're going to see simultaneously some highly repetitive rules-based tasks get substituted, as has always happened, right? If you, the difference being is just the power of the machine and its level of sophistication. There's lots of other work which ends up getting augmented, right? Or where we as humans are made so much more productive because of the technology. And then there's new types of human work, new types of skills that are, that are sort of created as a result of that. Some of those are going to be skills at the upper end and others are going to be skills that are required at the lower end. You know, one of the sad facts of our economy is if you look at, you know, there's been a fair bit of work created with kind of less skills required. I say that in quotes, maybe lower skill premiums. The challenge is that those people don't get paid anywhere near as much as their counterparts in other parts of the world. And you can look at to the very point you made, right? What's the effective minimum wage for people, you know, for drivers? And how's that trended down? If you look at Germany, if you look at France, there has been a flaw for all of those. You know, you can argue that as to how they've gone about establishing the flaw and whether it's it's fully competitive, but the reality is that the people engaging in that in those jobs and in those types of work have sort of been able to preserve their way of living while that has not been the case in this country. So I do think, you know, we're going to see, Adam, like significant pivot of dislocation from some professions to others as, as AI gets deployed. Um, there was a great piece over the weekend of probably one of the last bastions to hold out against robotics, which was uh, construction. Yeah. And the, the speed with which now you've got robots that can do drywall with incredible smoothness and stack bricks and navigate highly different environments, right? Because that was always the issue was that one house looks nothing like another and you've got to navigate and interact with humans. Well, we wrote about social robotics in, in the book and the fact that you've now got robots with the combination of senses and intelligence and mobility to be able to sort of actually navigate and take on some of these things that previously were viewed as sort of unattainable, at least not for another 20 or 30 years. Well, Robin, so, so we're all parents, right? I know you have kids as well. How do we prepare our children for the future of work? And maybe what, what areas do you focus on in preparing your kids, right? Like it, it's certainly not preparing them for the jobs that were when we were coming, right? So, so how do you yeah. think about this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, you know, I would regularly try and expose my kids to some of the work that I was doing and some of what I was seeing. And, you know, you'd get kind of the polite nodding and then, you know, fairly dismissive after that. But it's been for me, actually, my kids have been a bit of a, a Petri dish for me because I've got a son who is very into the sciences. He's a senior in college and he's focused on molecular biology and neuroscience. He wants to go into medicine. So, theoretically a much more traditional pathway, shall we say, versus I have a daughter who is much more agile and, and sort of, you know, looking to do some different things. She is very creative. She gravitate, gravitated to real estate because she liked the human interaction. She liked the fact that she was moving from one gig to another. She was interacting with different people. 
She could own the brand that she was building. So it's been fascinating to see these two very, very different personalities who theoretically, and I guess practically speaking, came from me and how they've each pursued it. But the thing that, you know, I've said to them and I've continued to observe is the only thing that we each control is our power to keep ourselves relevant, right, for a changing world. So whether it's in a traditional job, whether it's in a portfolio of different options, as you guys see with, you know, the, the folks who work on your platform, the ability to keep looking around corners and see connections between what you're doing today and something that might emerge and continuing to invest in keeping yourself relevant is probably been the common thread between the two. And I take a little bit of pride in that because, you know, I think the one thing that they've both observed is over my close to 30 year working career, I've continuously tried to acquire new skills and reinvent myself and learn and get better. And so hopefully some of that rubbed off a little on them. So is there favorite resources, books that you've read? I was saying more as a father, when you think about preparing your, your children to be you know, huge contributors to society or, or to be prepared for maybe what work looks like uh, in the coming decades. Gosh, I don't know if there's one thing, Gabe, that I would point to. I'm always, I'm sure much to their irritation, sending them, you know, articles, sending them links to, to new books I'm forgetting the gentleman's first name, but he was the former editor of Wired magazine, but the book was called The Inevitable. Kelly, I think is his last name. Chris Kelly? I think that's right. Yeah. The Inevitable was to me, it's, you know, I read it when it first came out and I've lost count of the number of times I've gone back to that book because it always triggers a new thought, a new connection, because I'm connecting something that he talked about to a new data point that is pointing the way to potentially an emerging trend. So I guess, yeah, Kevin Kelly, uh, the inevitable, understanding the 12 technology forces that will shape the future. I got to hope that blockchain's in there, right? (laughs) And then some. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a a good segue into uh, how we like to wrap these things up. We we, We call it the lightning round. So if you're down... We will throw out a question and just give us like a quick kind of one or two sentence right, right off the top of your head uh, response. And so, so on that on that last topic, what what is Robin one technology that you think will dramatically accelerate the future of work? I you you sort of alluded to it earlier, Adam. I think of low code and no code AI as potentially being a massive game changer in terms of just the democratization of AI and having it embedded in so many different applications and tools. I mean, it's funny, computer programming is a man-made, completely deterministic, closed system. It's mm-hmm. perfect for a computer to replace exactly. a human by, right? <laughs> so who's one person you follow closely on the topic of future work? So I mentioned David Alder at MIT. And in fact, I've, I've been a huge fan of David's. I've spoken at MTech, the, the conference that they do. And in fact, my, my next book, my fourth one, will be published by MIT Press. But I, I think David is doing some outstanding work. And the thing that is really impressive about David is his ability to transcend multiple different domains and connect them. So this next one, I, I love to hear your response on this one, because you are the creator of so many great pieces of, of work and literature on this topic. But what's, what's one piece of work or literature that's fundamentally shifted your perspective on the future of work? I would go back to the, the inevitable, 
I think okay. that really opened my eyes when it came out about the scale and the potential. And it also, you know, in my mind, create, created connections across many different domains that I had not been able to connect. <laughs> What's one temporary change as a result of COVID that you think will become permanent? What's going to happen with remote work and flexible work is going to be a massive pivot. You know, I mentioned we went from 2% to 50 plus percent overnight. We are definitely not going back to two and we may not stay at 50 plus percent. But I do think the notion of the hybrid workforce, and I, I struggle with the word hybrid, Gabe, in part because it, it, I guess it, it implies there's two states, right? And I yeah. think the reality is that there are going to be many, many different states. And I think that's what's going to be the permanent shift. And many organizations are going to be dragged kicking and screaming because they're just not ready for it. We talk about this shift from hierarchies to networks mm -hmm. and the way in which work is traditionally done. We also talk a little bit about kind of the concept of like the unbundling of the firm. But maybe that's a, a conversation for another day. And uh, Robin, we, we love to wrap up on this one, whose uh, question made famous by a, a personal hero of mine, Peter Thiel. What's something you believe strongly that is an unpopular view today? So I, I sort of alluded to this. It's this notion of a synonymous relationship between work and jobs. And this is a little bit of blatant self-promotionalism. So I'll ask your forgiveness and indulgence. But the title of my co-author John Boudreaux's in my next book is called Work Without Jobs. And it's precisely because I do think the future is going to be one that is far more nuanced that this construct, this 150-year-old construct is no longer fit for purpose. Well, listen, um, we'll have to have you back on once that book releases and, and dive back in. This is honestly, we, we, we live, eat and breathe this stuff as you do. And this has been one of the most interesting and, and uh, deep diving conversations we've had on the topic. So really appreciate you doing this with us. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Gabe. Such a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. So where can people find out a little bit more about your work? Maybe follow some of your thoughts, musings and perspectives. Sure. So I regularly publish on LinkedIn. So Robin J. Suthasen, um, also on Twitter, at uh, Robin J. Suthasen. And everything I do is, is on both of those platforms. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today and, and for the work that you're doing to, uh, to create a, a bright future of work. Thank you. 